The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. It is the Anton Savage Show. I'm joined by Daniel Murray, political correspondent of the Business Post, and Brenda Power, columnist at the Sunday Times and the Irish Daily Mail. And both of them, seasoned and, and expert journalists, did both of you know the restaurateur doesn't have an N? I did actually. Did you? I only discovered that recently. You can put an N in it. You can. Can you're, you? You're, yes, your autocorrect will not remove it. But yes, I discovered that. As recently. in, can you put an N in it and it be grammatically correct, or can you just do it wrongly? No, like, you can. Well, I, I know I have been doing it wrongly for years, and then discovered what the correct spelling was. But actually, you can. Your, your autocorrect will not correct you because obviously you didn't know that either. I'm well, stunned because I got that text from Anne and I read it, <laughs> and I read it with a certain level of sardonic irony because I thought, well, Anne is clearly yeah. wrong on this. Turns out. Well, I, I have right. copy editors in the business post who correct all that kind of stuff for me so I can't tell you whether or not I would have got it but right. But it's so before. illogical. If you run a restaurant, surely you're a restauranter. I know. You'd have to look at it for a while to see. Actually, yeah, that's that's how it always looks on the paper. I just Dealing with the cutting edge important stuff on this show, <laughs> let's be clear. There's a lot of things making uh, the news uh, this weekend and prime amongst them, I suspect, is the whole cost of living thing mm. and an interesting input from Christine Lagarde, who has said that the um, EU member states need to look at rowing back mm. at the cost of living measures that have been put in place. And in mm. Ireland's situation, this is kind of things like support for energy bills. Now, at a point where people have just, a lot of them received things like the gas and electricity bill and mm. inhaled deeply at what it added up to, is now the time to start yanking away those supports? Well, as um, you can see from today's coverage, the finance minister does not think it is. And he has told, uh, according to the mail, heading. Um, thanks, Christine. We will look after our own cost of living measures. Um, I mean, her argument is this is going to fuel inflation. And and his is, well, you know, national governments have to make choices for their own people. And in our circumstances, we feel that the, the, the time is not now, actually. And I think that was what was it Leo Varadkar said at Christmas. We don't want a cliff edge at the end of February when um, all of these supports are withdrawn. So the intention seems to be to continue on. I was astonished, though, to see how much I owe um, in, in that uh, publication re- relating to our, our debt. We're 44 grand per person in debt in this country per head the highest per capita one of the highest 44,000 euros yes, of debt per yes, person yes. anytime you have it handy now Anton um, that's that one of the highest per capita debt I suppose one of the, the one of the small advantages of inflation is at least it chips away slightly at that for a year or two the problem of course Anton is that uh, Christine Lagarde is with the European Central Bank they are preoccupied at the moment with mm. getting inflation under control so that's where she's coming from she's seeing wholesale energy prices across Europe have not reached the kind of catastrophic levels that were being predicted back during the summer but they haven't really come down dramatically yet either so I think what she's saying is that as and if they do start to come down and if those are passed through into electricity bills governments need to make sure that they taper down supports at the same time as Brenda says to make sure that they don't actually fuel inflation or or, or prop up inflation over the coming years. Which to some extent is a natural reaction. I mean if you're an employer and you care about your staff and your staff are finding it harder to pay for stuff the natural thing is to say well is there a way that we can increase wages as support which again is pro-inflation. If your government does it, you tend to look around and say, well, the people who are on the margins because this is the way we can support them, which again tips you into further inflation. It takes it takes somebody who is politically brave or very lacking in empathy to say, no, no, we'll put inflation first and foremost in our thinking. Yeah, and, and look, also, we haven't seen these slight reductions in wholesale energy prices pass through into people's bills yet. As, you, as you've just said, actually, some of the highest electricity and gas bills would have just arrived. They tend to work in kind of two-month cycles. That would have been December and January. They were really the two cold months. We had a bit of a mild winter running up to December. Then it got very cold. And so people are seeing both, you know, high energy use, for, you know, high heating bills 
sales uh, coming in now uh, and that combined with the very high energy prices uh, people are, are feeling the pinch now and the government actually are, are only just on the cusp of, of discussing a new package of measures which are meant to run out obviously at the end of February we've, we've paid out the full 600 euro in electricity mm-hmm. credits to people there's been welfare payments so those talks are, are starting to get underway now as Michael McGrath the, the finance minister uh, says uh, they will be looking at, at putting it in place further supports at least into the spring and of course the other thing that Christine Lagarde said during the week was you know the way the ECB gives us the mood music about what's going to happen with infl- with uh, interest rates the, the mood music that she was um, playing was fairly negative from a consumer perspective. We're looking at potentially more interest rate hikes through the rest of the year. Yeah, and I mean, I know that there has been a reduction apparently in in fuel costs, wholesale fuel costs, but whatever way they they manage to buy them, those are not going to filter through until next winter, apparently. So even though the cost to the companies of buying the energy has come down substantially, we're not going to feel the benefits of that. So again, we could be looking at one of those perfect storms over the summer. And of course, one of the things that is blamed for some of the contribution to the overall European inflation rate is the war in Mm. uh, Ukraine and the the Russian invasion Mm. of Ukraine. And that's also uh, having knock on impacts beyond the economics, because we are told this morning that hotels now are struggling to uh, justify the a the expense of um, hosting refugees when they could otherwise be in the private Mm. market, which is going through a relative boom in tourism terms uh, this year, if the figures be believed. But also all of the protests are causing them to say, do we really want this outside our buildings? Yeah, this is a story on the front page of the Irish Times this morning uh, saying that, you know, protest fears are stopping hotels from wanting to host refugees, both hotels that might sign new co- contracts that haven't signed contracts to date and hotels that have existing contracts that will be coming up for renewal. You know, many of these uh, hotels actually started hosting refugees last year. They would have signed six month contracts, you know, for, for certainly a limited period of time. Those are coming up for renewal. Um, some of them would have been directly affected by protests over the last while. And they, they may be thinking... They're better off coming into the summer period, uh, going back to, to to their ordinary kind of tourist, tourism work um, where there's less trouble. So this this is a big problem for the government. I mean, they face a, a possible exit of 8,000 um, uh, different beds uh, in terms of uh, hotel accommodation uh, over the coming months. And this is with the number of refugees increasing. Um, figures projected by a civil servant note to the government that there could be up to 180,000 people seeking international protection here uh, by the end of the year. So really, really significant. By the end of 2023, 180,000 people. 180,000 people. There's over 70,000 people now and that could double, close to double or more than double by by the end of the year according to an internal memo uh, given to the government last week. And I think that was a story in your paper last Sunday and as well that um, the, the Red Sea poll, the, the, the analyst, analyst who, who carried it out suggested another 80,000 refugees by the end of this year. So that would double the numbers already here where they're all going to be housed. Is anybody's guess? I mean, on one hand, you cannot blame hotels for wanting to revert to what their proper business is because, you know, during COVID, I suppose it was it was convenient to house refugees. But but tourism doesn't just isn't just about, you know, beds in hotels. It's also about the benefit to the wider community of people going to pubs, going to restaurants, using local amenities. So I I would imagine that in, in small communities, the pressure on those on those hoteliers to revert to their normal business model must be subtle but possibly but even, you know even if you strip out the community which, which is undoubtedly a real pressure for a lot of uh, hotels if they are in that kind of uh, region 
If you're looking at the numbers where you're saying air access is back to almost mm. 2019 peaks, where you're looking at the predictions for our biggest tourist markets for the UK and the US being a relatively good year, and you're weighing up the simple thing of, well, I'm going to make X times more if I go back to being a hotel. Very hard to say, well, people. I'll sacrifice my own, my salary, my family's money, my employees out of altruism to the state. And maybe it's easier to say I'm, I'm afraid of uh, protests rather than, look, there's much more money in this for me and for my community, in fairness. And it's part of the problem, both the hotel rooms, but also accommodation that has been pledged. You know, they've been pledged and, and, and accommodation found in hotels, supposedly on a temporary basis. But it's not clear that this is going to be a temporary situation uh, at all in terms of the war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. but also in terms of the increase in international um, protection applications here, which have increased as a result of Brexit. More people coming to Ireland than, than, than would have gone to the UK before. So there's kind of a perfect storm there that, that is hitting the government uh, in terms of accommodation, but now also developing into a problem in terms of protests, a few bad actors uh, on the far right looking to use those to push uh, their own agenda. Uh, and that is certainly uh, something that we're beginning to see in, in the last couple of weeks is having a very significant impact. It's also, I would have thought, having a very worthwhile impact from the far right's perspective. Because if what you're trying to do is foment a disagreement, dissent, if you're trying to make people aggrieved, the amount of coverage that the protests are getting and the amount of attendance and the amount of, of subsequent media purchase, it seems to be a roaring success for the far right. Well, as Aon O'Reardon, the Labour TD, says today in the, in the Irish Times, he thinks this is going mainstream now and not necessarily far right sentiment, but the use of far right sentiment uh, kind of playing on people's natural fears in, in communities. I think the government is belatedly understanding that integration, you know, which is part of the title of Roderick O'Gorman's uh, department, is something that they need to focus on now and actually put resources into because to date they haven't. They haven't communicated well uh, with communities and if this continues the way it's been going in the last couple of weeks then there's there's going to be serious uh, unrest around the country. Well, just well, before, sorry, just before we please. came in we were discussing this and I'm suggesting that maybe this should have been a standalone ministry in the in the reshuffle at Christmas, integration. You know, when, when you consider that Simon Harris, as you were saying, is a minister for higher education, whether or not that needs to be a separate responsibility from education when integration is such a press, pressing issue. And there was whispers, uh, you know, before the reshuffle that an, a standalone um, ministry looking after the refugee situation was going to be established. It wasn't in the end. That was a, surpri- a surprise to mm-hmm. some people. It's remained in Roderick O'Gorman's department. He has several other very serious uh, responsibilities as well. And this is quite quickly turning into the issue that is really consuming most of the government's time. Was this not to an extent predictable? I remember at the start of COVID, and maybe it's because I am a cynic, you remember where people were standing outside their houses clapping for the mm. workers in the HSE? And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, this, this is all fine and dandy for the first two weeks, lads. Let's see where we stand in nine months and see mm. if we're still as enthusiastic. And we weren't. We That's when we had all the criticism of Tony Hula and all the rest of it. Was this not eminently predictable with the refugee crisis, that the opening gambit would be everybody saying, let us throw Mm. open arms and be decent people, and that a couple of months later, all of the reality of what that means would cause people to become aggrieved? Why no plan? Well, I mean, if it's aggrieved or maybe it's just more It looks like aggrieved. It waddles like aggrieved. Yeah, um, but then again, I mean, you remember too, at that time, there were the people coming forward and and the Daily Mail has has a story about such such a person today who said, I've been trying to get refugees refugees. I have been trying to accommodate refugees and the forms you have to fill in and the hoops you have to jump through. This is a hotelier in, in, in Donegal who's quite happy to accept 100 Ukrainians. He said that the, the detailed questionnaire takes 
up, you know, half your day to fill this in. And you can just imagine the bureaucratic hurdles that people have to cross. It's actually and worth that was, quoting that, that story. Because yeah. uh, the one you're referring to is Ronan Smith in, in your mm. paper in the Irish Daily Mail. And it is the, the um, hotelier in question is uh, Aidan Farrell, owner of Drumhalla House in Rathmullen and Donegal. And he's quoted as saying, that he offered to take 100 refugees and quotes, I got a thank you for your application back in October and I haven't heard a thing since. I spoke to the local authority and they put me onto a county councillor and that all came to nothing. I sent them another email in early January uh, which I said in which I said I was prepared to keep the accommodation available until the end of January but at that stage I'm going to have to use it for someone else. Now that's 100 places yeah. available yeah. and nothing. And that was the story from a lot of householders as well that when they offered to take in refugees in that first flush of enthusiasm that it took so long that they despaired of it and maybe re- Reality had settled in then after a while. People went, actually, you know, maybe it wasn't the best idea after all and, and quietly withdrew their, their, their offers. Tech saying, of course, this was predictable. We already had a housing crisis bringing in even more people into this country, no matter how good the intentions doesn't magically create extra accommodation for those people who are arriving in. We're going to be talking about that housing crisis after 10 o'clock to uh, Owen O'Brien, the Sinn Féin housing spokesperson, because Dara O'Brien, the uh, minister responsible, is waxing positive about the situation. So we'll see if Owen O'Brien shares the same view. And on the fact that we have an accommodation problem is to Ireland's credit. I'd rather have this problem than block people from coming in, which I suppose is all well and good as a sentiment, Daniel. But if people are arriving in, they're getting stuffed in Croke Park or in a hall in City West. It's hardly a viable solution. Well, and increasingly, we may see those kind of situations. A call went out just last week from Roderick O'Gorman to all departments um, for accommodation in the style of school halls, mm. sports halls, uh, some you know uh, accommodation suitable for camp beds, essentially. And um, we obviously have seen tents used uh, over the winter in recent weeks. Uh, still being used even though the, the intention was to, to stop using those so it's hard to square the number of people um, that are going to predict it, project it to arrive over the next year uh, with the available uh, accommodation and so we may see this issue get worse. Now brace yourself for one of the world's great segues as we are dealing with an influx of people the nation has been reduced by one thanks to the BBC who have claimed <laughs> Paul Mescal. <laughs> I know. I mean, what would possess you to go to the trouble of ringing the BBC to tell them that Paul Meskell is actually... Now, how many people did this? 600 people picked up the phone or texted or emailed or or DM'd or whatever uh, and told the BBC actually Paul Meskell is Irish because He's not a Brit, give him back. (laughs) Apparently. I mean, God love them. They have a quite... I would just say feeble number of, of um, nominees this year compared to ours. So they tried to claim Paul Meskell and Bill Nye. Apparently his mother is Irish. So we're entitled to claim him, actually. Oh, is that, he, that's a reach now. So no, like, it's not, like. not, Sean. He could play for the Irish football team. <laughs> anyway, um, they said two British actors have been nominated for Oscars and they said Paul Meskell and Bill Nye. And the phones lit up with, as they do or whatever happens these days um, with 600 people saying, uh, Paul Maskell is Irish. But I mean, I seem to remember that when he when a similar error or uh, misappropriation was made at the time of uh, normal people, he tweeted himself and said, look, I'm Irish. And it was the most liked tweet in the world that year. So First well they came for Paul Maskell and you did nothing. <laughs> Before you know it, Gleeson's gone, Colin Farrell's gone. We don't do that. Why does this drive us so bananas? I mean, it's kind of hilarious because in many ways we, we try to claim so many people as mm. Irish as well in a very different kind of a manner. But it always seems to happen through official 
channels uh, in Britain. It always ha- has to do with people who have been nominated or won awards. I mean, uh, the kind of track record there, Saoirse Ronan has been subject to it, Chris O'Dowd, Katie Taylor, Conor McGregor. I think at times people have been happy maybe that yeah. Conor McGregor... Well, Liam Neeson would be entirely happy to have him left <laughs> if, if we judge recently. Yep. Comments by Liam Neeson describing him as a little leprechaun who is damaging Ireland's reputation internationally. There you go. So it's not always uh, not always a bad thing. But uh, one particularly interesting time was when Colin Farrell was claimed as British in an interview that Colin Farrell wasn't even in. It was Samuel L. Jackson that was being interviewed and Samuel L. Jackson came to his defence saying he was Irish and accused, saying to the interviewer, this is the problem with you British, you're always claiming everybody as your own. See, are we able to do that when we have the Barack Obama Plaza? Exactly. And Martin McDonough is London-born. So they're, they're entitled to him. Well, it's funny, I, I, made a, I, I made a comment in relation to the Banshees of Inishir and, and uh, as, as is the rule with the comment that you make on Twitter, I was set upon. But one of the people who set upon said to me, well, this is just because you don't understand rural Ireland. It's like, this is written by a guy from the East End of London. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's also different degrees of, of offence here as well. You know, one of the worst ones was Michael Fassbender a number of years, who actually won British Actor of the Year. So that is uh, that was quite a grave mistake, uh, but one that Fassbender was happy to accept anyway. The thing is, though, <laughs> we're entirely content to play this at both sides of our house. Let us not forget the wonderful Sir Terry Wogan who mm. happily took the sir by virtue of the fact that he was grandfathered in on a whatever pre-treaty passport. We have a long history in going either way when it suits us. Well, we certainly do. Um, so it, uh, it, it'll be one, I'm sure, that's going to come up again and again, though it's not the end of it. Um, so we'll watch for the next round of awards and especially uh, the Oscars. And if we're lucky enough to have Paul Meskell win to see whether or not he's claimed by the British again. I just don't think people get as exercised about it as, as you think they do, Anton. You know, I, I don't think people are annoyed. It's more amusing than but annoying. We've 600 matured. people we rang the BBC. Were 600 of them. Were they all Irish? Maybe they weren't. Even still, like you must have something better to do. While we're on things that we should have something better to do, we should have something better to talk about than this, but I can't resist it. A Samuel Beckett play, this being Waiting for Godot, which, if I recall rightly from the last time I suffered through it, it contains only men. It is only male characters. characters. Five male characters. Two main ones and a couple of lads who come in and out as it goes on. It has been cancelled in the Netherlands for lack of women. That's right. Apparently Beckett left a stipulation that it can only be performed by men. And uh, because other genders therefore could not be cast of the multiple other genders that there clearly are, um, it had to be cancelled because uh, only men could audition for it and that was not sufficiently inclusive. And as I understand it, it wasn't that you couldn't produce the play with only men in it, but you had to give women a chance to go yeah, to for the roles that are male. While telling them that they had absolutely no chance because Samuel Beckett would turn in his grave if and his estate would, would, would act, I, I imagine. I think he has actually in the past. He certainly has. So apparently in 1988, Beckett himself uh, took a case against a Dutch theatre who tried to put on a production of the play as women. So we don't know exactly why Beckett was so fundamentalist about the gender. Um, you know, he was quite fundamentalist about how his plays were performed in general, but uh, perhaps he thought only men were capable of the kind of absurdity uh, <laughs> that, that 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 goes on in, in Waiting for, for Godot. But I can't help but feel as well that... Uh, but hang on for a minute. Waiting for Godot is about... It is male characters. 
It is. It is. Mm. But, you know, you could also argue as well that there's no need for it to be male characters. And that's why mm. I can't help but feel that it is actually Beckett's condition and his estate's condition that it only be men. That is what's call it causing all the controversy here in the first place. Well, did you see the not- one in France where they, they agreed that they, they French authorities, because it went, I think, to some form of court case, they agreed that women could be in it. But they had to precede each performance with a letter of disappointment from the Beckett estate. Yeah, I mean, ah, a, a bizarre a thing for the estate to c- continue to, to hold up. Perhaps this, the high profile nature of this particular episode. And this is only a young guy. I think he's 24. He might only be a student as well, trying to put on a play in the university. So uh, the fact that he's being stopped, uh, you know, at possibly at threat of, of litigation is, is is quite bizarre. The estate actually holds the rights uh, to all of Beckett's plays uh, uh, and to this particular play until 2059. So perhaps we'll only be seeing male versions of Waiting for Godot for, for another 30 By years. By which time there'll be so many genders and so many different sexes available that it will be just a mind-boggling production from the start. I mean, I, I, yeah, Hamlet obviously has been played by women and without uh, the sky falling in. I just think it would be an interesting if any uh, theatre company had the financial wherewithal to challenge the Beckett estate as to see what exact ruling you might get on that from a from I a find the dichotomy in, in, in Beckett's personality very interesting because I remember a quote from him at one point where he talked about wishing that he could put the actors in the Abbey in barrels because their gestures distracted from his words and you think mm. wow that level of control freakery in the same guy yeah. who used to drop Andre the Giant to school like, I find it very hard to think of Samuel Beckett and Andre the Giant hanging out together. Mm. And that control freakery is is continuing beyond the grave uh, from his estate. So um, yeah. something that certainly hasn't brought good publicity to, to, to Beckett or, or this particular um, play. And, and hopefully this young student will be able to put on some version. Uh, this was meant to be his directorial debut. So uh, perhaps he won't be doing another Beckett play anytime soon. Well, if there's any solace we can take from him, at least the Brits haven't stolen Beckett just yet. Text <laughs> uh, many people in Britain, including very well educated people believe Ireland is a subset of Mm. British in the way Welsh, English and Scottish is a subset of British that's often the reason they claim us and another it's so exciting for us as a small nation to make it to an international stage that I think we get annoyed when credit is not given where it's due I think think your first your first texter is correct there you remember Andrew Bridgen during the uh, the the, the Brexit and negotiations saying sure I can I can have an Irish passport if I want it <laughs> I do think that there is actually a subs- a, a, a belief there that at some point we're, we're just in denial and then on the flip side when some of our Irish actors or other stars do become world famous there's a sense of begrudgery that, <laughs> that is very particular to Ireland as well so uh, we, we want to have it both ways of course. yeah we have the strangest <laughs> capacity to turn our heads against those who have succeeded overseas it's sort of you look at Graham oh, Norton oh, yeah oh. it's like a, <laughs> anyway Brenda Power columnist of the Sunday Times and Irish Daily Mail and Daniel Murray political the correspondence with the Business Post. Thank you both very much. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.